Good afternoon. I am your host, Sean Ramkunis. And I am also your host, Hunter Sagona. And welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. We believe that many people have a playlist that make their life unique through music. Here's a musical quote for today by Claude Debussy. Works of art make rules. Rules do not make works of art. So let me introduce today's guest on Music Speaks. My guest today is someone who I know through Ithaca College, who has been my teacher for the past two years. He is especially energetic, happy, and always exciting to talk about playing music. Internationally acclaimed trumpeter Chris Coletti is a soloist, chamber musician, and well known for his tenure with the Canadian Brass from 2009 to 2019. Chris is also the assistant professor of trumpet at the renowned Ithaca College School of Music in New York. Hailed as a technical superstar and household name by maestro Paul Haas and one of the most remarkable double music threats, a brilliant trumpeter and imaginative arranger by David Shrevnik or SiriusXM, Chris has performed and or recorded with musicians ranging from the Metropolitan Opera Brass and New York Philharmonic Principal Brass to Kanye West and Quincy Jones. With Canadian Brass, Chris has performed hundreds of concerts in many of the finest concert halls in the world, appeared on countless live TV programs and radio broadcasts, and regularly performs in front of a major symphony orchestra. Chris can be heard on nine Canadian brass recordings, most of which feature his original arrangements, and countless other recordings and music videos of world-class artists. Among his numerous accolades, Chris also has perfect pitch, is a professional whistler, and has the unique ability to sing an operatic high C. So Sean, even though you sort of mentioned it, how do you know the guest for today? So he was my teacher for the past two years at Ithaca College. And I am so excited to talk to him today. It's been so long since I've heard from him, but I'm really excited to to talk to him about his process as a being musician and what he's been up to uh, through this quarantine. And without further ado, then, I'd now like to welcome Chris to our podcast. Okay, Chris, so welcome to the podcast podcast uh we're happy to have you with us my pleasure i could have thought um, i should have seen that podcast it's an honor to be here guys uh hunter i'm meeting you for the first time sean of course we worked together for two years and uh so it's good to see you after our you've graduated and now you've got plans very exciting yeah. uh so the obvious question that everyone has sort of been uh you know we we ask most of the guests because it's so relevant and we were sort of talking about that before but uh, how are you staying sane during the quarantine? How have you stayed sane, assuming you were sane in the first place? Wasn't sane in the first place. Uh, <laughs> I think that the hardest thing is to come up with musical projects that are meaningful enough that you give it the same um, attention to detail that you would have otherwise. And for a lot of people, that means that they have to put together their own stuff, right? I think mm-hmm. especially as instrumentalists, particularly in the classical world, are probably our most fond memories were of projects that you know we were invited to play it might be that our school put together a really amazing concert 
and you know you don't unless you put something together like that you don't think about how much goes into putting together a performance of like a like the plant you know like i see did the planets a couple years ago it's a huge undertaking you know even just the performance plus they did the videos and stuff and so that might be the highlight of your life yeah what do you do in your home alone so i'm fortunate that i've been putting stuff together or at least part of the project from the ground up so many times that it wasn't that crazy of a leap to start doing it totally by myself so i've been doing things like that i've had a lot of recordings of you know just duets i've always dreamed of having a duet book and an etude book and i've always wanted to have a uh, like a method book and you know more things i could actually do than i can actually do at once so i've just sort of been chipping away and instead of being really linear about my progress, I just like whatever seems to be the most important or end slash or the thing I can finish the soonest I do next. And then I just keep build, building on that. And that keeps me going. Um, I've had a couple of things that I've been invited to do, thankfully. And that, of course, is easiest. You know, you don't think about it being easy, but it's easiest because there's an, a deadline and you have no choice. You can't negotiate it. And, um, you know, sometimes you're getting paid for these things. And then they do all the work, you know, you just have to make something. So I recently, I, I mentioned when we were talking before you started recording that I was part of a faculty recital. I was teaching at the Rafael Mendez Brass Institute, which was totally virtual this summer, not surprisingly. And the faculty recital was something we were to submit something. You know, normally somebody puts the program together and they ask you if they could, if you would play a number of pieces, you could choose one. But this was like, well, just send us your videos. And, and I wound up putting something together that I'd wanted to do for years, but held off because it was, I thought it might be too hard. But with the deadline looming, it was too hard, but it was the thing that I had closest to being done. So I chose Jacob Collier's arrangement of the Flintstones, which I did for trumpet on uh, seven-part trumpet, or really six trumpet and solo flugelhorn. And it was so stressful. It was like so hard, but I, I'm pretty happy with how it came out. And now, um, now it's there. And if I didn't have that deadline, it probably would still be something I was, you know, working on and never really finished. So that's how you know, you know how they say necessity is the mother of invention. So it's so true. You know, oftentimes it as you said, it takes that looming deadline, the pressures on to sort of spur us into the creative mindset to say, I have to get this done, so I will get it done. Even if you know you had more of a, let's say you had more of a passion before it earlier, but it's something about the, the the pressure that really helps to sort of give you the kick in the pants. Yeah, um, you know, speaking peer, of all, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, peer pressure is something I have to just throw this tangent in there that could be so powerful. It's, you know, we talk about peer pressure a lot, especially in younger ages in school, as mm -hmm. if it's a bad thing because a lot of the times. The influence is so powerful that if it is something that's bad, it could be really bad, right? You, yeah. can, be, you can be convinced, to, even without direct pressure, just because your friends are doing it or people you look up to, to be doing things that you would never even think about. And that could be really bad, but it could be really powerful. And if you use that um, to manipulate your own uh, direction in a positive way, it could be amazing. Because like, it's true. It's the deadline was a big part of finishing a project that was probably too big to even start in the first place. But it wasn't just the pressure of the deadline. It was the fact that every one of the people that were also submitting pieces were people that I grew up listening to and I looked up to them and like I, I just wouldn't allow myself to submit something that wasn't going to wow somebody, you know, or at least something mm -hmm. I'd feel proud of. So like surrounding yourself with people that you're like maybe even a little intimidated by in a good way, right? Like you wouldn't, you don't, maybe you pick your nose in front of your parents, but you wouldn't do it in front of, you know, 
Wit Marsalis. Well, hang out with Wit Marsalis and you'll kick the habit. It's not that bad. Not that crazy. Sorry, you were about to make a really smooth transition and I messed you up. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was just... <laughs> I'd like to think I was that smooth, but no. Um, no, but you were talking about all these things that you've planned to do and, you know, you got to do some of them in the quarantine. You know, they worked out, but was there anything that you had planned that you didn't get to do like something that was on the docket for i don't know let's say may or june or something and suddenly it was like nah you can't do that oh yeah let's see love my entire performing career <laughs> i mean every concert every solo concert <laughs> every orchestral concert every chamber music i mean i was gonna play um i was gonna be part of this festival it's not really a recital but like a, a chamber music festival with musicians from the philadelphia orchestra i was filling in for Dave Goldger. I mean, this is the, probably one of my favorite trumpet players ever. And I like, I'm so mm. lucky to be in a position where the, every gig I, not every gig, a lot, some of the gigs I get are the gig that I'm like, I can't even believe I get to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. So that got canceled. <laughs> um, although <laughs> fortunately, it is, but but fortunately, at least so far, um, because of the projects I've been putting together myself, including one, I was there was a bunch of concerts with the you know my own orchestra in Huntsville, Alabama, where I play principal, that were canceled as well. And because I'm, you know, I'm in the orchestra there, I suggested that we do something that's um, virtual and, you know, with the split screen stuff that everyone's sort of been doing now. And they did it and we wound up doing Ives Unanswered Question. And like oh. most things, and this is something I recommended, but for me, it works out. I, I just suggest, I was like, oh, why don't we do that? And I'll do the video and audio editing. I've done that a million times. And looking back, I, I didn't think I was lying, but I had never done that before. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> And, um, and it came out awesome. You know, I just, I guess I knew that I would, there's no way I would, um, I would show anyone unless I thought it was awesome and were at least good enough that I was proud of it, you know, and I would be proud of it even 10 years from now when I've gotten even better at these things. And so we did it and I put it together and that was something that was really rewarding. And then when it came to this Philadelphia thing, getting canceled with the Philadelphia orchestra members, I suggested, oh, I've been doing these video editing things forever. (laughs) I'll make a video of that. So we're going to probably do Quiet City. And um, mm. and of course, now I've done a ton of those things. And I showed them the one that I had done with the Huntsville Symphony, and they really liked it. So now they're just there's somebody writing grants to actually make it all work. So a lot of times, the, the most difficult times, like when it feels like there's nothing but problems, is when the most amazing opportunities are out there. Although that's not to say that it's not sad that a lot of these things are canceled but of course the really hard times are for those that are sick or that are friends with people that are sick or family members so i, I can't really complain mm-hmm. i'm gonna mm-hmm. turn this louder well i i mean but it is your sorry sorry that was still loud it was fine <laughs> um you know like you said obviously it is tragic for the people who are actually directly affected by the virus and or whatever the the crisis happens to be at that point but, you know, you have, on the other hand, there are people who are trying to make their everyday lives go on with a career maybe that's contingent on public performance or teaching. Like, you know, I'm, I, I went to school for teaching, so I'm currently looking for a job, but God only knows what fall is going to look like for teaching. For you, I know you do teaching as well, and you do obviously public performance, arranging. So... All of that is impacted, and obviously while the people who are hit most by this are the people who actually get sick, and unfortunately those who lose loved ones are the most tragic 
in its own way, it affects everybody, which clearly everyone has come to realize. So, yeah, I mean, you sort of just have to figure out a way to just keep going on the best you can while bearing in mind that if you're not sick, you have, um, you have, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say have it easy, but right. uh, That's yeah. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I think it's helping, it's helped us have a perspective that makes you, especially because it's literally the whole planet going through this, you know, at least for humans Mm-hmm. And I guess bats, but you're all the humans <laughs> like, uh, are in this together, you know. And yeah. I think I don't I don't think that even as tragic as everything has been so far, I don't think like the the ultimate tragedy tragedy would will be when if we um, stop trusting each other and then hum- all humanity is lost, you know, which has happened before in history. And fortunately, all those other times we've you know I guess yeah. I guess have come out of it, you know. But uh, for those that you know, without taking this down a really dark turn, there's been a lot of really crazy, horrible things. And it's easy and common to say, oh, well, everything gets better, you know, this and that. And it's like, you know, everything goes on the plus side. And it's like, well, you know, there have been massacres where the entire population was wiped out. You know, we think yes. about the ones where that didn't happen, you know, like the Holocaust was horrendous, like beyond, and yeah. it was videoed. So like, you can see how horrible a massacre looks. But there's been other ones that were the they succeeded, right? Where they literally wiped that entire population off the map. They don't exist, right? That happened in Japan more than once, at least in recorded history. The people that live in Japan now, they're not the natives, and the ones before that, neither were they. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's scary to think of it getting to that point. But I don't don't think it's going to get there. It really comes down to whether we're going to listen to scientists or not. And the scary thing is watching how much fighting... Um, siding with one political party or another seems to be causing, which has always been the case, but it's 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 enhanced because the stakes are high, and the stakes right. are also beyond politics. They're, they're health and all sorts of things. So that's probably the most stressful thing to try to do your normal life. It's already not normal, and then you gotta have to like you have to deal with that. Right. You know, it's always it, my my sister always describes it as she saw it somewhere, and she was like, "It's the perfect analogy." You know, right now, the everyone is sort of like the kindergartner sitting in class who's lost recess because the one person in the back of the room can't listen to the teacher, and the teacher says, "Well, then, every it's room one for everybody." You know, it's like that same kind of concept where there is a group of people who they, they don't follow what's being asked of them, and because of that, now everybody suffers. And I, I mean, it's it's obviously a funny example, but it's, well, it's sort of I'm the same just hoping- concept. I'm hoping it's the kindergarten example and not the, the, the junior high example where the same te- the teacher does the same thing and then after school they all beat up that kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. What, I mean, that that's would the be other... the, next, the next terrible step, which is sort of a little scary, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's become clear that people are, are not always the best judges <laughs> of, plan- of plans of action. So they've obviously they've made mistakes and probably will continue to make mistakes. Right. Um, but speaking of not making mistakes, you know, you've clearly done quite a few things right because you have a, a very successful career. Um, see, that was my attempt at a smooth transition. Um, that was pretty smooth. Whether it was successful or not, who knows? But, but you going with it with a compliment always works for me. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, your career obviously has been very successful. You're very young to have had such such success up to now. 
um, you've clearly done quite a few things right. So throughout all or before all the accolades in the career, how did you get started? Was it? Yeah, thanks. I feel well. I I can't. I feel like I've been so lucky in so many ways, and I I don't want to make it seem like it's not attainable for other people. And and, and point to luck, but I also don't want to pretend that I should be given the credit because there's a lot of luck mm-hmm. involved. Um, but I also was, I had a lot of support from my parents, which was great, you know, in their own way. And um, that really helped. And as a result of that, and, you know, when you look at a life that you, if, if you're somebody that's younger than the person you're looking to, their career for inspiration, you know, you look at their path and you know, a lot of parts of it you might not necessarily want to copy, but I feel like music was a really good escape for me in a lot of ways, and that's what made me focus in on it. I even used it as an excuse to not go out with friends that I liked, but I felt like, looking back, they were the wrong crowd to be yeah. with, and, and it was like, you know what, I don't want to do that. I got to practice. And that was like, even though they didn't really get it, they were like, oh, you guys just got to go practice. And that was like, that meant I didn't have to go out. And that really helped, and that escape was something that was, um, you know, like what the motivation was sort of changes throughout time. When you're really young, it's because you get attention for doing it. Then it's that. Then it's like, well, this is my excuse not to do something bad. And and then it became obsessed with the music itself. And I think that really helped. Um, looking at people that really impressed me with their careers, like they were able to, to do stuff that seemed like Elon Musk is somebody that I look to at least for his, as far as like how much he's able to get done in a small amount of time. It's just mind boggling. And whenever I feel like I'm too busy or whenever I feel like I, you know, I don't have enough time to do X, Y, Z, I look at Elon Musk. I mean, he's, I mean, if you're familiar with his work, he started so many companies that have been so successful and have literally changed the world. And it's not just for the people in that one sector. I mean, for the space industry, he cut, even this is before he even sent astronauts to space on the first private, you know, rocket ship that sent astronauts to space successfully and safely. He had cut, he basically was able to uh, make progress really quickly because he realized that the challenge was that you can't really experiment because the experiment, sending a rocket into space is crazy expensive. And he figured out why it was expensive, which was like, seems obvious now, but it was because NASA in secrecy was hiring separate companies to do very specific things. They weren't even really sure what it was for. And then they would (laughs) charge them as much as they can because the U.S., dollar is i don't know how long it'll last but it's still the world currency and they can print as much as they want it has no actual value so they would just print money pay for the stuff and it would it would work and so he figured out how to make his own parts and cut costs by 95 percent. i mean it's a pretty ridiculous thing that's a lot so i always think like what can you what can i do to my own life you know that that's that same you know zoom out try to solve a bigger problem and sometimes there's smaller problems that everyone has been butting their heads against the wall trying to figure out that suddenly you know by by solving a bigger issue you solve all of those things at once so i think that mentality like reading as much as i could from people that think that way you know benjamin franklin was similar where he just like thought about bigger projects and wound up solving Mm -hmm. all the nitty-gritty that everyone couldn't figure out in the meantime um so i always made sure to read a lot and i feel like that helped me realize who i wanted to be around and how helpful it was to be I mean, when you realize that you can choose who you will be around, and now it's a little bit different, but when you can choose who you'll surround yourself with and that, that and you admit that that'll actually be an enormous influence on what you wind up even caring about, all the things that seem like you decide, but it'll influence what you care about, it'll influence your goals, it'll influence how you spend your time. It's an amazingly powerful thing. A lot of 
people like to believe that they're not influenced by that, but it's just you are. It's the same argument that you hear parents and you know marketers or video game creators about like, oh well, video games don't make people more violent, and it's like you can't simplify it like that. I think that's probably true, but if right. Consuming a certain media that's been designed to get you to do a certain thing wasn't effective, then there wouldn't be millions and millions and millions of dollars per commercial spent just to get it in front of your face. Mm. It works. Okay. Right. I don't think the goal of video game designers is to get people to kill each other, though. That's <laughs> but the point is, is if you admit that that you can be that we're all very easily influenced. Um. Then, and that by choosing who you decide to hang out with and what you decide to consume, you can actually get a hold of your own uh, trajectory. That's an amazing thing to admit. It almost feels like you're you're admitting your own weakness by submitting that thing, but it's really helped for me. Mm -hmm. And when you were little, musically, what did you choose to consume? Did you you clearly are a brass player? Uh, did you start as a brass player? Like I assume you probably started in school, right? Like as elementary school or something yeah i started trumpet when i was nine in fourth grade and i actually chose the clarinet but i think they needed trumpet players and so my band director was like ah your hand's too small <laughs> and how's that <laughs> and uh he was known to hand a clarinet player that wanted to be a clarinet player but he really needed trumpets he would be known to uh hand you an instrument without the reed so you'd blow oh. on you'd blow and blow and blow and they get no sound then you gave a trumpet and you'd get, it'd sound like a you know oh you're a natural <laughs> And that's how he would build up his brass section if he needed it. But no, I actually started when I was four. I, I started as on violin because I heard oh. it's Zach Perlman on Sesame Street, and I was wow. I got hooked. But I was I was an idiot, and I, I after playing for a while, I felt like I was really good because I was a four year old and I didn't know anything, and it was I was at a very small school, and uh, so I told my mom I didn't need lessons anymore. <laughs> and she didn't <laughs> she didn't want to push me so. Um, they, they stopped the lessons, and then, of course, my playing fizzled out to nothing. And then I, when I started playing trumpet, though, I, I remember I was nine years old. I told my mom, like, Mom, don't you let me quit the trumpet. Don't you let me quit this time. Like, I blamed her. And so she helped. She would pretend she enjoyed listening to me play the scales and stuff to keep me going. That really helped. Uh, <laughs> but when I was when I went to high school, I, I started studying with Dave Krause and, um, and also Lori Frank before that. And, and Dave Krause was the first person that like really would say to my face, he's like, stop just listening to trumpet players. Stop just listening to brass. Like, listen to singers. Listen to choral music. Listen to opera. Like, listen to other stuff. I don't care what it is. Don't be one of those people. And and I think that I I just had forgotten that I liked music. I didn't really care if it was trumpet or not. And that really changed me, my playing and my life because I wound up meeting people outside of trumpet. I wound up joining I wound up hanging out with string players. I started dating string players. I had a girlfriend that was a violin player. And, and whenever their string quartet wanted to do a sextet, I'd play the viola part. And that's where I learned how to transpose. And that's where I learned how to play other clefs. And it was never, I mean, I was learning those things in school, but it felt like, you know, I wanted to rebel and not do well in school. I was like, I don't want to learn from these people. <laughs> when it was like my girlfriend's string quartet, I was like, no, nah, like I'm, I'm all in good in here. Yeah. And that's how I wound up, um, I think, just hanging out with people that I wanted to be able to hang out and I was always with people that were a little bit better than me a little older than me and usually not on trumpet and that made a big difference too yeah I mean again it's it, not quite the same but necessity mother of invention 
ascension type concept where you are with people who they push you to be better because mm -hmm. even if you don't know it, again, it's that peer pressure thing, you admire them or you you look up to them in some way where you say, I don't want them to see me as less than what I know I can be, mm -hmm. um, even if they don't know it yet. Did you have somebody who, well, I'll get to that question after, but after high school, where did you want to go in college? So I went to Manhattan School of Music for my undergrad. Mm -hmm. and, um, and actually before that, it was a really nice transition because before that I was going to the MSM prep on Saturdays and I was already doing all, all like the after school orchestras and stuff I was doing were already in Manhattan. So it was nice to wind up in Manhattan. I wound up moving to Manhattan when I was 17, it was, which was really crazy. I had my own apartment and everything and as a <laughs> high school student, it was crazy. It was amazing. That's weird. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> it was really unusual. It was incredible because... I was suddenly like in the thick of it and I had like an advantage of having a year in front of the school. So I, I was right. really settled nicely. And um, Manhattan school turned out to be really amazing for a lot of reasons. I really liked the small school. I loved the, the players. I loved my teacher, but ultimately I, I, I liked that they were really fair with their audition and it's not like this probably now. And it wasn't like this at Juilliard, which is where I went and did my master's. You would audition at Juilliard and like most schools you would, get ranked first through whatever and then depending on how you did they would think about what's most fair and like how who's graduating and they try to give everyone the parts that was even but at manhattan school if you got first you played first on everything in the best orchestra and if you got fourth you played first in the second orchestra and that was just the way it was and so winning the audition was super important to us and i made sure you know the first time i don't know how i ranked the second time i was second and the third time i got first and i was like i got to play first on everything and then there was even one show where like i was supposed to play i wasn't even supposed to be in the concert kurt mazor was going to come and somehow they switched me out and i wound up even getting to play first on the stuff that i didn't win the audition for and it was i wound up oh, playing cool. principal trumpet on everything it was amazing um and then i think that experience really helped me do well on auditions and i got into a bunch of really good music festivals i did tanglewood and music academy and pmf in japan and this other one in italy and all of those things really shaped my playing, especially as a classical player, specifically orchestrally. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. So then when, obviously that gave you a great deal of playing experience, you probably met quite a, quite a lot of excellent musicians other than yourself um, through, the, through those experiences. So how did you get into the realm where you would eventually go on to work with the Canadian Brass and um, wind up going to Ithaca to teach. How did you get into all of that? Yeah, another luck story. I mean, I, I've always wanted to go to Juilliard, and I was really dis disappointed when I didn't get in for my undergrad because when I auditioned, I I was studying with Dave Krause at the time, and you know he was teaching there, and he asked his colleagues who are, had been there longer and had probably more pull, and they were all like, yeah, he sounds great. It'll be no problem. And I didn't get in. Then they didn't put anyone on the waiting list that year for some reason. So I didn't get in, and I didn't get on the waiting list. And I was like, oh, man, it would have been one thing if he didn't tell me things were fine. Right. But anyway, so, and it's possible I'm not remembering that right, but that's the way I always remembered it. So for my master's, I was like, I am getting in. I'm getting mm -hmm. in. I'm going to give it my all. And I even had my roommate, and he's amazing that he actually did this. By the way, my roommate is the guy that actually married my wife and I. He. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he wound up getting ordained because we always wanted to be able to call him Father Charles. So Father <laughs> Charles, my roommate in high school and college, he he's like, all right, we're going to do this. And I was like, all right, don't let me watch TV unless I'm done for the day. No, don't let me. I had batons. I had scores. I'd like to study, conduct along with stuff, recordings. I was like, hide it. 
I don't want to see it. Burn it if you have to. If I if I really if you think I'm gonna find it, you can't find a finding spot. Get throw it away. And he did it. And unlike most friends, which would cave when I got really upset about it, he would not let me do those things. And I focused on practicing and like really getting to know my stuff. And so I got in. And then of course Yale. Uh, got that giant donation that became a free program and I got yeah. into Yale too and and for somebody that's always sort of rebelled by not doing well in school which is really stupid but that's what I did I was like oh my gosh I got into an Ivy League school this is like even better than going to school that I've always wanted to go and it was and it was free and it was like oh my gosh what do I do now and um and I felt like I kind of had to give up a lot of really cool opportunities to go to Juilliard because the Yale thing seemed like such a shot like I wasn't even dreaming of that um, but I, but it wound up being the right call for the Canadian Brass thing because Brandon Ridenour was already a member of Canadian Brass, and that was when they had they called it the Trumpet Dream Team, where they had trumpet players sort of all over the world. There was a guy Yaroon in Europe that would play when they went there. You know, Brandon played a lot of the more East Coast stuff, and they had someone in the West Coast. It was like kind of a whole mix of trumpeters, but they were hoping to get some you know a, a trumpet section. It was just two people that were going to be working well together and just do everything. And so um, I knew I got to know him there. He came to my recital. We did a gig together, and he wound up calling me to do duets one day. And I had no idea that he was auditioning me. But lo and behold, that was like getting to see how we work together, and that's sort of how it came to be. So, you know, there's nothing fair about that. I mean, I, I still had to do well, but it was you know so much of it was timing and knowing people that were able to hook me up. So. <laughs> You know, it's a funny thing because having connections, right? I mean, even if it's unintentional, and everyone always says, or at least I have found that many people come to resent people who have those connections or people who become successful with those connections. But like you said, you know, it, I don't want to say it's happenstance, but that's how people get ahead in the world, right? I mean, I think a lot of the the success stories that we hear people don't realize there's always somebody that you knew, like. It could be the smallest person who, I don't know, was the cleaning lady for the chief executive officer of some company. You know, something, that's obviously a very exaggerated example, but it, it is about who you know. As much as people don't want to say that, there always is some sort of connection for every success yeah. story. And I mean, that's both a good thing and a bad thing, so I think people who have those connections they shouldn't be upset if they use them because it was the hand they were dealt. And I mean, if you want to be successful, mm -hmm. why not use them? But, you know, obviously then the people who don't have it, it is that much more difficult for them. Yeah, it, It's a tricky situation. But I think, it, like I said, if you had those connections and even if you didn't know it at the time and that's what was happening and it worked out for you, more power to you in my opinion. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of people fighting, and they've always there has always been a lot of people that are fighting the fairness fight, and it's and it's a good cause, and they should fight it. But I always felt that you should you know you should also try to leverage the relationships that you have, and I think that we're and there's some people that do that unsuccessfully, but it's not necessarily because they didn't do the bright the, their best. I think it's because they didn't focus on the right things. And so I feel, and I didn't do this formally then, but I, I do it more now, and I definitely did it around those times where I was trying to make my career happen. But, I mean, how many people are really good at staying in touch with people they've met, right? Almost nobody's good at that. Mm -hmm. they, they're terrible at it. And then those that are more outgoing and that do it more often, they tend to be annoying. So it's like you're yeah. better off being that person that feels uncomfortable doing it, but 
but why not just take a note of everyone you meet maybe every year and write a few things about them, right? Write down their birthday. If they have kids, you know, people that have kids tend to really be obsessed with their kids. Like write their kids' names down, something they're like their whatever, how you met, anything that they're interested in. And just reach out. If you feel like there's somebody you want to get to know really well, reach out more often. If it's somebody that you just want to stay in touch with, reach out once a year or something like that. And don't reach out for favors, right? Reach out in a way that you're just really trying to find out how they're doing. And especially somebody that's younger, that's a master's student or just graduated or an undergrad. I mean, that's the the younger you are, the less common that is. And and it's also not going to come off as sharky. And it's so powerful because the connections don't come from the person that you think. Like most of the time in school, everyone's trying to impress their teachers, but their teachers aren't going to help them. Like I never got a gig from my teachers. I got asked to play with the Met before. That was from my teacher. But that's a very specific thing, right? My teacher's in the Met. You know, that's about it. That's What else can he do for me, right? Directly at least. But right. my friend was in Canadian Brass. I didn't. I don't even think I knew he was. He wasn't in Canadian Brass when I met him. You know, it's just like, or I have a friend now that's a composer. This guy Joe Trapanese, and I would, you know, a lot of times people don't play the composer's music. Sean, you did. You would hi- get people to write stuff for your recitals, but hmm. I felt like they were like, oh, no, I got to practice my excerpts. And it was like, <laughs> all right, I just wanted to play anything, and I liked the new com- compositions because hmm. it was something you could actually add your voice to and make it a success or not, as opposed to the hmm. excerpts where it was like. Is either good or bad, which is not really that fun. Right. And this guy is like, if you've seen Tron, if you've seen, you know, <laughs> name all the major movies that ever happened, he wrote the music for that and worked directly with it, did all the orchestrations. I, he was a talented guy. I mean, I never would have necessarily guessed that he would become this enormous, you know, face of composition. Or and he probably felt the same with me. Like, I was a good trauma player, but you never know who's going to become somebody like that. And if you're trying to become friends with people because you think they're important, that's sleazy. But if you're yeah. just trying to sincerely stay in touch with people, you might find that the person that you never would have guessed takes off. And just because you were nice, you know, yeah, you 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 might still be on their mind. So it really is um, like all the people skills that you develop as, as you go through life. Those are probably the most valuable things you can do. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you know, my my grandfather was in the business world for many many years, and he was actually the um, president of the Bridgeport edu- uh, the Bridgeport Board of Education for 27 or 25 years, something like that. Um, and, you know, he always said that in both business world and the education world, he said the, the relationships you create are what create success. And you should never, ever burn a bridge with someone unnecessarily, even if you don't feel like you said, even if that person has nothing to offer you, Simply being a good person to that other person, forming a relationship with them, being kind, it will, that in itself, one, shows your own character, which other people come to recognize, but also, you never know in the future what that person winds up doing, or what they might need, or what you might need, so, you know, not to say that you ever do something with the expectation of owing a favor, but... You know, if you can, again, then it's worth uh, it's worth putting in the effort. And if they can't, you have a friend. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, it's worth it. And you know, I'm I'm sort of like my family's unofficial historian, and um, <laughs> part of my goal, or not my goal, part of my labors have been 
reaching out to these people who have lost contact with relatives over the years and knew them when they were little and whatever. And, you know, I've gotten a great deal of information, of family photographs, of all this, uh, I'm going to say, of this history that was lost for so many years. And even after sort of get what you need from these people, keeping in contact with them, it's a... It shows that you know you value the relationship that you have with them. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's a little different with, with something like a family tree because it's it's familial. You know what I mean? But there are plenty of people who who don't see the value in that. There, a lot of people have the opinion that you know if our families lost lost contact years ago, there's no sense in reconnecting now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I understand that, yeah. but. But if I, I mean, you do know, if you know you're related to a person and you have, you know, you haven't slighted them in any way, I have always been of the opinion that why shouldn't you get to know them? Yeah. Yeah. And the same goes for someone who maybe you're in the business with, whatever that business happens to be, whether it's education, music, uh, factory work, anything. If you know the person and there's no, and there's no reason for you not to get to know them and continue to associate with them, then why not? See that's that you're bringing up a great point, and and it's at your age, it's great that you know that you have that role, even if it's I mean, if, especially if it's unofficial, because mm-hmm. what when and it's all a little weird to think of it this, but every relationship, you know, you think about like what the value is that you're bringing to it, right? Mm-hmm. Even just like little kids when they become best friends, it's like you could still break it down into in terms of like what value is the other person bringing, and it might just be that they have fun around each other, you know, mm-hmm. but like. As the, you know, everybody needs, like, it's really easy to see why it's important to have somebody that does what you're doing, which is like bridging gaps, especially ones that were there before and then or connections that were there and then have fallen away. That's a very valuable thing. I've actually worked with a lot of people that they, ne- they weren't necessarily like the most famous, the most successful or the most incredible musician even, but they, they put stuff together. And they're well aware that that's their role. You know, I, I mean, I can't think. Of, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically, especially if they're listening. You know, but like <laughs> a lot of the times, like if you're not the best, like I didn't think I was the best anything. I was actually in the middle of starting a brass group, a brass octet, because I felt like, I mean, I had actually gotten so fed up with excerpts. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do the audition <laughs> circuit and that be the only thing I'm doing. I'll go crazy. And I was in the midst of starting a, uh, an octet, and I, I think. I almost forgot until recently about how important that was in my trajectory because I suddenly my own friends who I admired them for being amazing players, maybe better than I was. They looked to me as somebody that was organizing something that took all their skills and put it into one project. And, you know, obviously I had to abandon it when I got Canadian brass, but it was cool having suddenly establishing that role. And I didn't even realize it at the time. I just wanted to play, but there was nobody putting anything together. And if they were, they weren't really hiring me. So, like somebody like yourself, like you're you're bringing a lot of value. And the cool thing about that skill is you could bring it to any field, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to say, "Well, my degree is only this, or my playing is only at this level, or anything like that." That's valuable for every sort of relationship. So good. Oh, thank you. Keep it up. <laughs> I, I try. Um, and I, yeah, I hope to, I mean, you know, that's always, you know, with the family history, it's always ongoing because people are always, um, they're always, you know, the tree's always growing, but like you said, in every field it's applicable and it will always be ongoing because every field is, it's continuous. Um, and I always, you know, I always like to think of 
that skill sort of as like a not even as a big a bridge builder but more like a gatekeeper you know what i mean like or or maybe the the troll who lives under the bridge who doesn't or does or does not let people pass um you know the bridges so are there but, but exactly <laughs> um i charge people as they pass um and then i slink back into hole where i live in darkness um right. <laughs> but, you know the bridges are there it's just whether people are not choose to cross them and especially in the education field i think you know whether that bridge leads to further education or leads to someone else who inspires you to further your education or someone who just leads you to something you now enjoy i i think like you said it's something very very applicable to applicable to that field and you yourself when or you now teach as well correct that ithaca yeah exactly and when and how did you start doing that was it as a result of your work in the music business or was it sort of disconnected oh it was definitely a result um i when, when i was a student i had no interest in teaching i i had no interest at <laughs> they all. never do <laughs> i hated it i hated it i, I hated the idea of it i because in, in my mind it felt like the kind of thing that i would do if i wasn't able to successfully have a um a performing career but but keep in mind that's because in a conservatory there are no music education majors so i was completely oblivious that i would say that the best word to describe conservatory is <laughs> the word oblivious because i mean it seemed like every single person wanted the same thing and that's so amazing about teaching at at the ithaca college which is such a great liberal arts college with such a strong music program but the thing that's so different, this is an aside here, but so different from where I felt like I was in that same age, is everyone's got their heads on straight and, and like are very interesting people with really thoughtful approaches and they want to help the world. I didn't want to do those things. I just wanted to play the trumpet and be famous. You know, like it was amazing. I was going to say, clearly, because everyone goes into music business, <laughs> instrumental music business to make lots of money. I did. I, I mean, I wanted to. That's not why I wanted to it, but I still wanted it. Right? And and it's it's so impressive that there's people that at that at my at the age when I was so immature, they're they're consistently very mature. Maybe it's because it's the only college that I've taught at full time. I've taught at other places adjunct, but um, it, maybe it's a unique place. But it, it it is incredible that how different it is because I was so. Uh, <laughs> so focused on like if i'm not a famous trumpet player i've failed that's how it felt so to me teaching was never an option but of course getting into canadian brass was an enormous you know not everyone gets a big break it's usually pretty uh, uh pretty pretty linear but um i was doing things that got me led me to that point and it was a big lucky moment and of course it just amplified everything i was already doing and it put me on on the center stage and mean uh, give me a bigger audience to do what i was already doing and so I, uh, the, the teaching thing was something that the other members, many of them were already teaching at big schools. Um, we had somebody teaching at, uh, at Indiana University who was at, um, you know, Illinois State and, you know, all different colleges. And, and Caleb, what now he's at Texas, but he was at before that he was in Colorado State. And so it, it's, it was clearly, the, it seemed like, oh, I didn't know you could be a, a musician and teach. I mean, like, how ridiculous is that? I mean, I had musician teachers. You know, they obviously were musicians. Right. But in my mind, I was so oblivious to this whole world because I had been so focused on just trying to play. 
And, um, and of course we did tons of teaching, which, and I wound up loving it on the road. We would travel everywhere we'd play. We would go to the local college or high school and do a master class and sometimes give lessons. And, um, I wound up teaching, you know, adjunct at colleges and wound up really enjoying that. I mean, I, I love it, but it was a, it was, it was a surprise because it wasn't something I set out to do. And so absolutely it was a direct, it was directly as a result of Canadian brass because my degrees have nothing to do with education. My career had always been performance-based and, but obviously it was incorporated into education. And I think that's what gave me the credentials that despite not having a, you know, a doctorate made me an eligible candidate, at least for them to take a look at what I was able to do with the students. So I'm very, I feel very, very fortunate. Mm-hmm. And Sean, as one of his students, you know, what, what have you, he's been oh. sitting there very quietly <laughs> and patiently. He's sort of like the ghost off to the side who's waiting for his turn. Yeah. Um, but what did you, being a student of his, how, what did you feel you got most out of learning from him? Um, was there anything particular that stood out or anything you felt most uh, comfortable with after having been taught by him or anything? Chris looks so nervous right now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was about no, but I was about to say this isn't a commercial. <laughs> no, I, I've told him this before. Um, energy, boundless and boundless folds of energy. When you have to go and play, you just have to just you have to go rocket. Um, especially when you're nervous. I think that I've learned that from from him. Like. Um, because initially when I started my program, because I, I went to Ithaca College for four years before that, remind you. So when I came in, I was sort of used to this sort of like, because I, I had uh, Doc Dunnick as my as my teacher initially, and he was like strict, 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 strict. And I walked into Chris's office for the first time, and I'm like, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. And Chris is like, no, 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 no. What, what do you want to do? I'm like, oh, okay. And so we had this sort of like sense of like boundless ideas of like how to do different things. And he let me sort of think about what I really wanted to do. And I ended up doing a project that I was really happy to do at the end was the uh, Brandenburg slash the Lee Swar concert, which was probably the best experience I had at IC in like a really long time. It was something that I was able to include the audience with, um, and it was something where, like, I had this idea where, like, I always wanted to, like, have them be involved. And, like, I was able to give them food before the concert and in the middle of the concert and have them entertained. And um, we did something where we did the Brandenburg, but we had it set up a different way, which is really cool. And so moving on from there, I mean, I think the best thing I learned from Chris was just be able to explore, you know. Don't take uh-huh. one thing for an answer, I think. Just, like, be able to you know, try to explore what's out there besides the one thing you're doing. Well, that's very cool. And it sounds like, you know, he would be the, um, uh, what's the word? The, the uh, oh, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for. The enabler. <laughs> enabler that I was going to say the aficionado of exploring, but that doesn't make any sense. The, although you are the enabler. Um, I think you've created a monster. Um, (laughs) um, but no, it's, it's very insightful because, you know, you don't often get to hear people talk about what they learned from their teacher and then the teacher 
talk about what they learned. You know what I mean? It, it, you don't often get to yeah. experience that because you think about how often do you get the opportunity to sit both the student and right. teacher down, a student and master. And I still um, feel I still feel like I hope I hope maybe you learned something from me, but maybe not so much. I don't really know. <laughs> absolutely. Well, the thing that's fascinating. Well, what first fascinated me with teacher with teaching was was something I experienced with my very stu- first student. I was I was still a student myself, but and this was a total beginner. But everything that drove my uh, efforts on the trumpet was because I knew that I wanted to be a professional, and they were like obvious, really really big hurdles that you'd have to jump, you'd have to overcome. And so for me, it was like whatever a teacher said to do, it was like okay what else you got I'll do that and what else you know I was like I was I just had I knew I had to like do all these impossible things and get lucky and have the time and so when I first met this student and that was like a little kid and like he was like well I don't really want to play music I just want to you know and I was like I couldn't really I was like well then what do you do why are you here like why are you here why yeah. do you practice like I, I, what, I was fascinated like why are you motivated to do anything on the trumpet like why are you even doing it like I don't do it yeah. because I'm just doing it for fun and even though I was having fun, but I didn't realize, I didn't, I, I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and, and through teaching um, people that weren't trying to be uh, performers, it helped when I, and it was always exciting when I had somebody like Sean that does want to teach, but also wants to perform and, you know, and uh-huh. it's, you learn so much from every student you have because they don't have the same motivation that you do and they don't do well when they're told the same things that you are told. Right. sometimes some of the, the weirdest teachers are ones that had the best teachers because the teacher was so good at convincing them that what they were given was like everything that everyone needs mm. and then they just do that and it doesn't work because it was only so effective because that teacher was good enough to give them what they needed not yeah. necessarily because they right. have the prescription that works for everybody and it's hard to figure out what makes people tick and so like getting to know Sean was exciting because he was a, he's a unique person and very creative and a lot of energy as well and I want. I kept thinking, like, how do I, you know, get him to get better at the things that I think he can benefit from improving on, but also help him thrive in the areas that he already does. Because a lot of times when you're a student, you don't even know what those are. Yeah. No, I agree. And, you know, my two fields that I got my, my teaching certification in are music and Italian. So for the past year, I had been teaching Italian. I had a long-term subbing position in Meriden, um, which is here in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, the majority of the kids who took the language, when you take a language, it's similar to when you take music in school. Most of the kids are taking it because it's a requ- it's not a requirement, but it's they need the credit. You know what I mean? So it's not that they really have a vested interest in what you're teaching, although there are some that do. Do, and it's the, the real trick, like you said, is knowing what each of them needs and really figuring out how do I convince them that what I'm trying to teach them is worth learning. Especially yeah. if, like you so said, hard. their motivation is not the same. Then, yeah. I mean, I had a whole class this past year. The entire class was just nobody wanted to be there, and Man, that's the worst. It, it was, and it was very difficult because. Not because they didn't need, not even because that they didn't want to be there, but because obviously, I mean, there aren't very few kids who actually want to be in school. Um, 
but it was difficult because they didn't see the value in the topic. Mm. And I think that's the biggest problem with students in general is that where they are age-wise, they don't see the value in material. And you try to tell them and their mindset is, well, you're older and you think it's more important than it actually is. Right. Yeah. It's a, you know what I mean? And I mean, I'm not that much younger. I'm not that much older than those particular students. And, you know, I got through to some of them. Some of them took it seriously. They did their work and some didn't. And I feel like that's always going to be the case, whether it's teaching language, teaching music, whether you're high school or whether you're college. Although presumably if you're going to somewhere like Juilliard, do you think it's important? Yeah, well, there was always, if you're a performance major and you're going for the orchestral path, it's always like, well, you got to do this. And you're like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, you're not going to get a job. All right, I'll do it. You know, it's like it was yeah. always this loom. It was easy to convince us to do anything, you know, or right. like, oh, well, then you won't place well in the auditions or you won't. So, yeah, no, I, that that's exactly right. I mean, it's really hard. I, I, I don't think I've ever had anyone that truly didn't want to be there at all. And that's, you know, props to those teachers because I, I was that student. <laughs> For every other class that I had to take on, so sorry, all of you. If they're they're probably not listening, but you know, oh, yeah, it's not fair. But I think that did help me in those situations because sometimes you're. I mean, even with Canadian brass, I mean, we got spoiled because we would, you know, obviously when you're a musician that people know who you are, you're hired, and the audience that shows up are people that are there to see you. And until right. I was in the group, I wasn't experiencing that. You know, usually my concerts were at my college, and so even if it was Juilliard, they were fans of the high-quality concerts that Juilliard puts on. They didn't care that it yeah. was me or someone else playing principal. It doesn't matter. They still go to those concerts, and I'm not in there. But Canadian Brass, it's like, even before they were coming to see, they probably weren't there to see me, especially when I was new, knowing who I was. If anything, they were disappointed to see me and not the people they were hoping, you know, which is awkward, but, but they want to <laughs> see the group. You know, most, most fans don't know the bands that they listen to that well that they would know notice, right? Right. And um and so they just wanted to see the band and it was amazing to get to play for people that wanted us. and we got spoiled because we would occasionally get asked because we were known as these like music education group as well to go play for kids that were too young. They didn't know who we were and they were like like you're describing the kids in your class for Italian. It's like they don't or the class you were teaching, like they don't know who we are. They don't care that we're that we just came from Japan and that we like <laughs> bent over you know, it's like the worst thing ever to have to wake up early to play for these kids you know we don't even want to do it and they're like looking bored we're like what is you know we were just guys innovation we signed out autographs for two hours you whatever place it was really it's really crazy to have to do both of those things and um but i think that it's an important thing otherwise you get stuck on your high horse and then you're not effective at all like if you rely on everybody just hanging on your every word that's just not the, it's just not the way it is, especially when you have students you see every week. It's way easier for me to go to some other city and teach one lesson, blow everyone away. That's easy because they're a fan and they're, they just want to, you know, if you say something that they've heard a million times, they're still going to feel they're going to take more from from the guests than they are from the person they see every week. It's, it's harder. I find it's much harder to feel, a, a, to be as effective with a weekly student because they're less impressed with the things that you've figured out for them that's exactly that's exactly right and but for most I teachers that's all they get so i give them a lot of props <laughs> yeah <laughs> i at least know what it's like to be lucky sometimes <laughs> a traveling teacher is it's much easier uh, yeah i imagine but yeah you know we, we, you know my i had a teacher who he said we go to war with the army we got and right. you know, it's like whatever whatever card you're dealt 
that's what you got to work with. So if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity, you do, you work with it. And if you're not, you work with it. You know, it's like, and that's the adaptability, which is part of partially a musician trait and um, partially an educator trait. It, you know, it's so applicable to many traits, uh, to many uh, fields. All right, well, I think that this would be a great place to take a break. And then when we come back, we will hear your playlist that you chose. And before that, we are going to hear from our friends from Anchor. And then we'll return with your playlist. All right. Please. All right, we are back with my former teacher and my friend Chris Coletti. And Chris, the first song we're to listen to is an arrangement that you compiled together called Flintstones, or The Flintstones, the main theme, uh, written by Jacob Collier. Actually, not written by Jacob Collier, a different guy, but arranged by Jacob Collier, arranged by you. For six trumpets, and you said one for flugelhorn, and I'm so excited to talk about it, so we're going to get right into it, and we'll listen to it, and we'll talk about it right afterwards. So let's do it. Here we go. Oh, sorry. Here we go.
All right. So, oh, cool. and so, so, Chris, I want to ask you this: How long did it take you to get that flugelhorn solo down? It took a long time. It took a long time. You know, so I'm, I'm really lucky. I have it. My oldest is two and a half, and he's obsessed with Jacob Collier, too. And so he wants to listen to the Flintstones a lot. And so I've listened to him many times. And actually, he's when he discovered accidentally that YouTube can play stuff in slow motion, he's, he's always like, do it. And I play it, and he's like, slow. I'm like, okay. And so he listened to it slow, which I, I don't think I even realized or made the connection that you could do that. Because when I was your age, we had to try stuff. <laughs> transcribe stuff at normal speed so but with this i definitely slowed it down a lot of times and um especially that soul i mean i don't even know how he improvised that i honestly don't it's the most crazy thing ever and you should hear the original if you've never heard it sure. i mean because it's perfectly clean mine you know i did my best sure. but uh yeah sure I had to and... sing it. you know basically i actually have a recording of me singing through it i deleted it because it was terrible <laughs> um i mean i i felt like i really nailed it too because i right, yeah that's how i learned it but I was like, all right, no, I'm going to have to play it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> was, which was disappointing because I was like, ah, if I can't play it, I'll just sing it. It'll be a really cool moment in the piece. Right. And then it was like, dude, three hours later, I'm like, oh, my God, I actually have to record it. Oh, my gosh. Right. So, yeah, it took a while. But learning it was the hardest part. I mean, it was just so, so fast. And Jacob Collier is one of the biggest rising uh, music theorists starring, right? I mean, like, he's crazy yeah. doing crazy things. He's doing yeah. inc- doing incredible writing, incredible um albums and he keeps winning grammys and he still lives at his mom's yeah. house which is incredible um yeah. so which is, i think it's awesome <laughs> well, he's like 25 years old or 25 yeah i mean yeah. that's 20. not fair <laughs> i know i think he was 22 when he wrote that and yeah that he won a grammy for that arrangement and um yeah when i first saw that i couldn't believe it i mean some people are so angered by the arrangement that you, there's reaction videos people are like are you serious are you kidding me what is this be-? because it's so it's taking every single possible thing you could do to an arrangement and doing it all at once sure. to the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, the first, my first reaction was like, why was it the Flintstones? Couldn't he have done it to like a melody by, you know, you know, I don't know, Schumann or something. <laughs> <laughs> the Flintstones and he turned it into this like magnum opus three minute, bam. Yeah. And it's like 50 clicks faster than it needs to be. And it, and I just fell in love. I just was, I'm still blown away by it. I can't believe it even exists. So recording it was such a joy, but it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Talking about things that uh, exist in the <laughs> world of uh, classical music, we've talked about this a lot. Um, Bach is another big hero of both of ours, I'm sure Hunter as well. Oh, yeah. And he wrote a lot of really great stuff. And this next one you arranged, it's called the Goldberg Variations. Uh, this is actually variation number five for trumpet, and I'll let uh, Chris talk about it in a little bit, but let's listen to it and uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. 
was probably the second hardest thing I ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so I Chris, can't play it anymore. I, so, I was trying it this day before my lesson today, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm really... It's a, although writing, transcribing it was easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least. So Chris, the funny thing is that you were able to show us your process of doing this, and it was incredible to watch because um, you had showed us click tracks of just individual segments of you doing it and I remember yeah. you telling us like wow this took me like 20 minutes and then this took me like two days and this over here took me like you know and I was like wow that just yeah. it requires a, a lot of dedication and I think the same thing that sort of aligns with maybe a pianist who's working on this as well because there's just so much happening and it's it's so there's so much happening there yeah. is just activity happening so much where let's so to quickly ask you um what do you sort of take away from box writing in this Oh, he was an alien. But the thing that's incredible is, like, on one hand, it's impossibly perfect and impressive and technically perfect and mm. just every, you know, like the peak of human intellect. But on the other hand, it's so human and so heartfelt and so, comes from such longing. It's an amazing dichotomy that he's able to bring together in all of his music. Yeah. Um, nothing bad you know that he's written it's crazy it really is crazy i, I think he's in a league of his own i think yeah. most musicians probably feel that way so anything that anytime i get to work with his music it, i feel extremely fortunate and this particular variation i always heard it and thought you know this would be really fun i i learned it first on on harpsichord and piano and loved it and it's so hard i'm not a very good keyboard player and so turned out it was just as hard on trumpet just because it's harder on trumpet even though i'm better at it on the trumpet it was yeah, yeah. it's just magnificent stuff though cool so the next piece that chris chose is a piece called granada uh written uh for canadian brass and a recording session that he had done maybe about 10 or maybe five or six years ago you think yeah uh yeah it might be yeah. more recently maybe three or four okay um, this so, was actually on our newest album called Perfect Landing. Perfect Landing. And without any further ado, here is the end of this song called Granada for Canadian Brass. So, without any further ado, Chris, I need to ask you this right away. Um, recording can be sort of an animal sometimes, because you sort of want to have to sort of find the, the balance between, you know, being really good, and I would have a really hard time playing this because I just have so much fun doing something like this. And it, it, it sounds like you guys are having a lot of fun while playing it. But why do you, how do you sort of able to stay focused, but also still have fun at the same time in this very intense, like, you have to pay for this, to, to you know, you're, you're, you're spending your own money to make this. Um, what's, right. what's, what's that process like for you? Yeah, it's stressful because, um, a lot of the times also there's a certain energy that you, especially with a group like Canadian Brass, cause we performed so many concerts, there was a certain energy that we knew it had to have that. But a lot of the times, which was sort of fascinating and just as fascinating as it was frustrating, the way we played it, that would like get the audience to go wild. And we really was, were able to craft what that was. Uh, in record in performances, just didn't really come across in in in, uh, con in uh, recordings, and even though on a live recording it would be great, on a, in a recording where we were close mic and all that, it just sounded a little bit 
like too bright, a little bit too sloppy, and the time wasn't as good. So yeah, that you're right. I mean, it's really it's tough because you're deciding and listening back to it and making these things happen while you're recording it. There's no way to really re- prepare. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I think what's really could be also frustrating is that everyone is different in how they record. Some people are better the first take and they get better worse as they get tired and other mm-hmm. people are you know they get better as they play it more and more and then you have this like we all start like that and then that could be tough so but as long as everyone is is in has the same idea of that it has to just be amazing but eventually you got to just be done you know <laughs> wind up coming to to something that's something like that you know sure sure well the next piece that chris wants us to check out today is some excerpts from Mahler 5 which he does talk about here um, Mahler 5 being the 5th Symphony in C-sharp minor. Uh, we're going to check out the beginning of it, and we'll talk a little bit about it in just a second. So, here we go. So Chris, uh, my first question is to you. Here's a more sort of directed question. In this piece, Mahler works hard to make the trumpet a soloist, a choir member, and a listener. Because when you're not playing, I think you're obviously listening. What part of that, which which of the three do you enjoy most? Oh, that's tough to say. I think what I like about playing Mahler is that, especially the symphony, is that mix. Um, and actually... In orchestra in general, I really enjoy that you're almost exactly splitting your focus between leading, following, visually, and listening. And it's mm. it's a it's strange, especially as more and more studies point out how poor humans are at uh, multitasking and how we shouldn't do it. We should structure our lives around not multitasking. You know you have to multitask in an orchestra because you're being led by a visual cue but you have to play with something that is audible and it's really clearly sounds bad if you're not with it mm. but you're also a leader especially as a principal trumpet and so you're right that and i think that is exactly what i love about it and at this piece there's the added stress that it's something you work on so much in auditions and um there's a lot of things that you're supposed to do so on one hand, that makes it stressful. But on the other hand, it's like, well, when it comes down to it, when it's the concert, I'm making the sounds and I'm going to do it how I want. Sure. And that's sort of freeing as well. Sure. And um, also in a concert, you could feel like it's a little bit easier to go for what you think Mahler wanted and not necessarily what the trends of the times are. Absolutely. So the next piece that Chris gave us is uh, from the Haydn Trumpet Concerto, his performance of it with the uh, Symphony of the Northwest Arkansas. And this is the first movement, I believe, and uh, we're going to be playing the end of it, and here is a little bit of a taste of that.
So that was all cadenza. No, hi- yeah. none of that was Haydn's. I, I wrote that cadenza, but um, <laughs> I do really like the Haydn concerto. I really like Haydn in general, and I mm. found that I I like starting to like Haydn more the less I listen to the Haydn con- trumpet concerto, and more I listen to other Haydn stuff. <laughs> and then I came back to the concerto and started to realize that oh wow, this really is Haydn, and it's really nice. Yeah, even though none of that was. <laughs> So I remember this being one of the first pieces I learned as a trumpet player. Um, What makes this such a staple for our repertoire? Well, it's the only classical piece we have, really. You know, you got the Neruda, which is for horn, not really a trumpet piece. And then you got the Hummel, which isn't really classical. So, yeah, I think that's it. (laughs) It's also kind of, you know, those that don't know the history, I mean, it it was an instrument that was written to popularize a new invention at the time, which was the key trumpet, key mm. bugle, basically it was a trumpet with these keys, much like saxophone keys, which made it fully chromatic. It was the first fully chromatic brass instrument other than the trombone or the sackbutt. And this was an attempt at popularizing it. Obviously, that was a failure because it never caught on. Mm. But the piece was a success, and we still play it. And um, it's really fabulous. Actually, it's really fantastic to hear it on the original instrument. There's several really great players that play it on the period instrument it's incredible to see it looks really wild and it sounds really cool so chris the last song that you gave us for your playlist today is the gershwin prelude but no specific from gershwin it is from your friend brandon and wanting once again so we're going to listen to uh, prelude number two by george gershwin played by you I believe you went to um remind me if i'm wrong i believe you went to russia for this Slovenia. Slovenia for this. Okay, cool. So this is Chris performing the second prelude um, of Gershwin, and we'll hear a little bit of it, and we'll ask him some more about questions right after this. So, Chris, something I want to mention to you is that there's a really great story of when um, Leonard Bernstein heard that when Gershwin died, he was at Tanglewood the one summer, and he went to a piano, and he said, there's this pianist, composer who had just passed, his name is George Gershwin, and I'm going to play the prelude number two, and he played it, he stood up, and then he left. And something that sort of sticks out to me is that he died too young. There's definitely about that. I mean, like, he was, like, the, the, the top of composers at the time. I mean, he studied in France, and then he came back to America, and he did so much great work. And I think in this case, Brandon does great justice to this work um, in many cases. So is this a really smooth crossover um, what does what do you think Brandon does an amazing job of setting well? I think he does a really nice job of sort of taking each 
individual part of it and placing it in the trumpet, but also keeping the piano part intact, which I think is kind of important. What do you think about it? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Brandon, as a composer, and he's also a pianist, and I, I think both of those things make him a particularly good arranger because, of course, he's a fantastic trumpet player, and his arrangements always sound like the composer's original. Not like it's a copy of the original, but it sounds like the, what his version is the original. And that's a pretty incredible feat. You know, it's one of the challenges as an arranger is to do a version that's at least on par, if not better than the original in some way, adding something unique to it. Um, another good example is the Canadian brass arrangement of Little Fugue. You know, Little Fugue is in a cool piece on almost anything. It sounds good on an organ for sure, which is originally four. Sure. But on brass, you know, it adds these, it's suddenly four parts broken into five players. It adds a little bit of sound. It, it adds a line to each <clears throat> fugue subject. And um, that you can't do on an organ. And Brandon seems to do that with this as well as his other arrangements. He has an arrangement of um, uh, Fair Elisa, which sounds a Fur Elise. It sounds a lot like a theme and variation of Fur Elise, but it's so compelling. It sounds like Beethoven wrote a theme and variations for Brass Quintet. It doesn't sound like an arrangement. It's astounding. I can't, I don't know how he did it because he's not Beethoven, but he. <laughs> becomes Beethoven for that moment that he needed to arrange it. It's really worth checking out. So yeah, Brandon is one of the best arrangers I know. And uh, his original compositions are really great too. And so I'm always happy to play his his stuff. Hmm. You know, the, the, the thing that's so, so tough is that he's such a great trumpet player. Whenever he does an arrangement, he really does it for himself. So like by recording it after he's done it, it always just feels like, well, why even bother? You know, he already sure. recorded an awesome version. But um, but when you're putting a recital together, obviously you're not trying to compare it any, yourself to anyone. You're just trying to make a nice concert, and his works wind up being really useful for that setting. So. Sure, sure. So Chris, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come right back, we'll have the fastest musical quiz in the history of this podcast, and uh, we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. And we're back with my friend I'm Chris. I'm to say on the air that I'm hearing kids... <laughs> uh, we're back with my friend Chris Coletti and Chris uh, we have three short pieces that we want you to try to guess the name of the composer and if you if you can also name the name of the piece that would be really cool only play like maybe 10 or 15 seconds of it but here we go here's the first piece here we go here's the first one Yes. And uh, their piece names are the least memorable things. <laughs> Let's see. It's, so it's a canzona, personare, for 15. Ooh, so it's for eight people. And it's called, Jubil <sighs> it's a Jubilante Deo. But you did get the right composer. Did right get the right, right composer. Yeah. yeah, I should have gotten that. That's actually <laughs> the only one that has a real name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's number two. Here we go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who is that written by? Oh. So this is the this is the funny one that has like the really high C, with the soprano goes. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. 
That one? Right. Yeah. I'm just trying to think if it's... Palace Freedom? So close. It was Allegri. But you were in the right department <gasps> of good. Italian composers. These are good. These are good tests. And here is the last one. Here we go. Number three. Any idea, Chris? <laughs> These are good. These are good ones because that's <laughs> tough. I know it, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, let me think. Let me think. Do you want to hear a little more oh, of let it? Me take a... Give me a little more. Okay. Okay. You have any, oh, okay. Do you know who, who wrote it, maybe? I mean, at first I thought it was uh, an Italian Baroque opera. It does sound right? like that, yes. So it's definitely but, Italian and Baroque. Okay. All right. Well, then. Because that clearly narrows it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, but for a second there, it sounds a little bit like Mozart, and then it sounds a little bit like Bach. But yeah, but knowing for sure, because I don't remember the piece, uh, that does help. Yeah. Um, and then it sounds a little bit like that opera that, that I played while I was teaching you, Sean, and then I remember you worked on a little bit about some of the arias. Sure. And um, my brain is fried from not sleeping last night, and I'm trying to think of the name of the composer. And this is just me being silly. But I don't know the piece. So this is his... So this composer's piece is the Christmas uh, Concerto Grosso. Um, it was written by oh, Carelli. Arcangelo Carelli. That's right. Now, would you like to go for more money, or would you like to stop? <laughs> I think I, I want to keep my marriage intact, so I should probably stop it. Okay. It's already after four. So, me and Hunter really want to thank you, Chris, for being on the show today. Is there anything you want to share with us before you get going? No, you know, you guys had some really great questions about career and anything like that, and um, um, I address a lot of those in detail on my blog, so if you want to send people there, sure. it's trumpetchrisblog.com. I'm happy to respond to emails. I get them all the time, and I actually read them, and I really write back. So stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks I'll see you soon. There. You got it, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm going to sign off. Save my family. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Ciao. Thanks, Chris. And you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Tomorrow, we will have Gabby Sig- Dona, my sister, 
who will discuss her love of theater and her involvement in it, as well as other musical uh, involvements that she's had. That's it for me. I'm Sean Mkunis. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And keep listening to what you love. love.